Good morning. I'm Bob Walker. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Life Church, and it is very, very good to see those of you who are here this morning, and it is good to worship with you who are uh, watching online or over in the East Hall. And uh, if you've been here any time at all, this is not going to be a surprise to you, but I love the letter of James. Uh, My time with this letter has changed my life, and I want to tell you a little bit about that about that part of my testimony before we dive into the sermon. I've had a special relationship with this small book for 29 years. In 1991, I deployed with the Air Force overseas to fly missions in northern Iraq. And as often happened when I deployed, all the Christians from all these different units, we'd eventually find each other. And we'd figure out ways to worship together and to study together. And so this small group of people Uh, in in a base in Turkey, we decided to study the letter of James. And then I volunteered, or as sometimes happens, I was volunteered by somebody else to lead the study. And so I'd studied the Bible on my own before. I've even led classes and Bible studies by that time. And I'd read through different books of the Bible, maybe with the help of a study guide, or I'd read a passage and consult as many commentaries as I could. I'd, I'd look up every single word in a dictionary or lexicon, But now I was deployed to Turkey. I'm getting ready to lead a Bible study. And all I had, all I had with me was my Bible. You know, I'd taken a couple of how to study the Bible classes, but I never put what I learned into practice. I did remember one instruction from a book called Take God's Word For It. And that book commended reading books and passages repeatedly, enough times so that you knew it, so that it sunk in. And so that's what I did. I committed myself to reading the book of James every morning when I got up for this first week, every noontime around lunch, and then again every evening. So in that first week, I read the book of James three times a day. And so that was hard to keep up. So the next week, I read the book of James two times a day. And then every week after that for the duration of the study, you know, maybe another six or seven weeks, I would read the book of James one time a day. I even rediscovered some Bible study methods that I had forgotten. I would put myself in the place of James. What am I thinking about the people I'm writing the letter to? What if I was the pastor who received this letter? What if I was the person sitting in their equivalent of a pew, and they're hearing this letter for the first time, and it, and it helped me see things in James I had never seen before. I would even read the words aloud. I, I, I would pretend that the pastor of whatever church I was a part of had handed this letter to me, and I was the one to read it aloud to the congregation. So I went off somewhere where nobody could hear me, and I read it aloud, and I gleaned new things. It would just start to stick in my mind, and patterns in James just jumped off the page that I hadn't seen before, and we'll talk about some of those this morning. But what really happened to me, it was I was changed. The Lord changed me through this time with his word. I could not hear anybody say anything without it reminding me of something in the book of James. Pretty soon, James was just coming out of my mouth all the time with Christians and non-Christians. And then soon, I couldn't even do anything without my actions being influenced and controlled by what the Lord was teaching me in James. 
my thoughts, words, and actions were submitted to the word of truth by receiving the word implanted, to use James's words. And I shouldn't have been surprised. Here's what the, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter four, verse 12. He says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So even now, I do not go a week without remembering and practicing something from that study 29 years ago. I don't always study books and passages the same way, but I often do. And I would tell you, I don't love the book of James, the letter of James, more than other passages of scripture or other books of the Bible. But I do love James the way you would love somebody who was solely responsible for introducing you to your wife. If you could point at that one person and say they were responsible for that introduction, that's the way I feel about James. James introduced me to the love of my life. And it's through this book I've come to know the Lord better. I've come to know the rest of his word through learning how to study, just spending that time in James. And my prayer is that we all know the Lord better as we submit to his word and let it dwell richly within us. So let's begin. Justin asked me to preach a summary of the book of James and then end with preaching on James 5, 19 through 20. So if my preaching has a little bit of a breathless quality, it's because I have the, that task in front of me to preach through the entire book. And even when I uh, was thinking about preaching, I'd have this, this hurried, uh, breathless quality. So I'm going to try to slow down just a little bit. So we're gonna start with looking at the unifying theme, the unifying theme of this entire letter, the thing that ties it all, to, all together, and that's enduring until the coming of the Lord. And after we talk about that for a little bit, we're gonna move on and just review the entire letter. I'm gonna read large portions, and we'll talk a little bit about those portions. I'm not gonna to try to re-preach all the sermons that we've already had or pull out the the best one-liner, but we want to get a feel for the book of a whole. And I'll tell you, when I read James, here's the feeling I get. I get the sense that it was carefully planned and that it was written in one sitting and that it was meant to be read to a church in one sitting. So we're going to look at the entire letter and we're going to ask questions like, what does God want us to know as we hear this letter? What does God want us to do we want to get this sense of the letter as a whole. And then as we're reading through the book, we're going to look at three unifying themes, things that are repeated throughout the book, and they're just critical to understanding this book. We're going to look at what James says about the words we say, about our tongues. We're going to see what James has to say about the attitude that we're to have, humility. And then we're going to see what James has to say about the gospel, and we'll cover that at the end. And then at the end of that review, with the context of the, un, the whole letter just pushing us like a tidal wave, just the sense I have is it's pushing us into those last two verses. And so with the whole book behind us, we're going to, to just smash into the last two verses, and we're going to see what James would have of us at the end of this letter. So the outline is enduring 
until the coming of the Lord. Then there's going to be an overview of the letter, you know, looking for tongue, humility, and the gospel. We're going to talk about chapters, chapter 5, 19, and 20. And then we're going to end with the gospel in the book of James. Endurance. Right at the beginning of verse 2, James says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Trials test our faith. Testing produces endurance, and endurance has its perfect result that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, we don't go looking for trials normally, but enduring trials is a good, good thing. Let me say this again. Enduring trials is a good thing. James reinforces the same point in verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials. Why? For once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He ends this letter with the same message. Chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For how long? until the coming of the Lord. This was the critical message to be included in this book. One of the very first New Testament books to be written down, maybe the very first New Testament book to be written down. And this message of endurance shouldn't supply us, surprise us. Let's take a look quickly at Matthew 10, verses 16 through 22. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of the father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Jesus also said in Matthew 24, verse 12, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The rest of scripture is replete with warnings to endure. 1 Corinthians 1.8, and I'll just read these three sections very quickly. Christ will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. First Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So church, it is of vital importance that we endure to the end. We must endure. The consequences of enduring are too great. We're commanded to endure. 
We're told how to endure, and this is important. We are given everything we need to endure. We're given everything we need to endure. So with that context, let's look at the letter and see what our endurance is to look like. And then as we're reading, remember, look for the gospel. Look for passages about humility. Look for cautions about the words that we use. And I'm going to point out some of those. So let's start. James chapter 1, verse 1. James. Who's James? Let's just remind ourselves. He's the oldest of Jesus' brothers. Mark 6. Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to James. 1 Corinthians 15. James was a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, along with Peter and John, Galatians 2. He presided over the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Paul reported to James after his third missionary journey in Acts 21. You know, wow. He introduces us to himself by saying, James. You know, just one name. But then how does he describe himself? And watch him demonstrate the attitude that he is commanding in us, humility, in the way he describes himself to us. This is how he's describing his relationship to his own brother, a bondservant, a slave. How does he describe his brother? The Lord Jesus Christ. And each of those words means something. Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus is God. Jesus, James is describing his own brother with his name. It's a, that name is a derivative of Joshua, the Lord saves. And then Christ, the Messiah, the appointed one, the one who saves us. So remember this. This book's been criticized because it doesn't depict the gospel as clearly as Paul often does. But these words, the Lord Jesus Christ, speak clearly of the gospel. And we're going to look at this again at the end. So let's keep reading. Verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's go on. Verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who, who gives generously, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double, double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Who can we apply this passage to? I'm in a room full of people all looking at someone who lacks wisdom. We all lack wisdom. We need to ask for wisdom and ask believing God will give it. Just even look at at verse 5. There's a command. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. We are commanded to ask God for wisdom. And then it's based on his own character. God is one who gives to all generously and without reproach. His command is based on his character. He's encouraging us to ask God for wisdom. And then 
there's a promise, and it will be given to him. So in this one verse, there's a command. There's the character of God. There's a promise. And I think this would be a really good time to stop and pray. Let's ask the Lord for wisdom as we continue on. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We come to you as your children who you saved. We trust in you. We trust in the, in the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf and the salvation that we enjoy because of that. And we are your children. We're not, we're not orphaned. We're not enemies of you. We are your sons and daughters, we, and we come to you. We ask for wisdom. We ask for understanding. We ask for, for courage and strength to live out your gospel. And we at, we're asking you, our Father, and we're not just pleading for something that we don't think we're going to receive. We do come before you confidently confidently because you've given us that confidence. So please give us wisdom to understand. Give us wisdom to live out your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe a question. Have you ever uh, prayed without believing God would work? I'll tell you, I have, even recently. Have you know, people will come by the office and they might need just some monetary help. And so for each one of those who comes by the office, we share the gospel with them. We pray with them. You know, sometimes we'll offer some of that monetary help. And I will tell you often, many times, as I'm sharing the gospel, as I'm praying for them and with them, I'm not really expecting God to work. I'm expecting that this person just, you know, maybe needs some little level of help and then they're gonna be on their way. And that is a sin. That is something I have and need to continue to repent of. Is there something in your life that you pray for, but you don't really expect God to work in or to give you? We need to repent of not believing God. So as we continue reading in chapter 1, remember what we're reading because James is introducing things that he's going to expand on later. And then in chapter five, he's gonna repeat some of these things again. James is just wonderful about introducing a subject, expanding on it later, and then wrapping it up at the end. And it just makes this, this letter uh, come alive as we're reading it. As we, as we go on, he starts talking about the, the rich man and the poor man. And James is telling us to look at the world through a different lens. He flips the positions of the rich and humble. Note the way humility is portrayed. And if you don't have your Bible open now, whether here or at home, please have your Bible open. You're going to need to follow along to, uh, to understand what James is saying. What does he say? He says, the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position. Rich men are to glory in their humiliation. We together are to be a humble people who glory in humility, whose humility is one of our greatest attributes. We are to excel in humility. And I know how that sounds, but there's just no avoiding it. We are to be a people who are known for being humble, who excel in humility. And he keeps going in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. 
people of God, trials are not temptations. But what happens? We are often tempted in the midst of trials. Our temptations happen when we're carried away by our own lusts. Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away by his own lust. Why does that phrase sound familiar? If you remember a few weeks ago, we were preaching in James 4, where it says, our lusts and temptations lead to sin and quarrels. It is an evil thing for the people of God to give in to lust and temptations. It causes us to sin against our brothers. Let's just keep going. Verse 17, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And I ask you this question. I think we asked it in our community groups uh, probably two months ago. What good thing has been withheld from you? If there was something good for you to have right now, do you think your father is withholding that from you? Think about this. Eve in the Garden of Eden was deceived into thinking God was withholding something good from her. She was tempted when she was, let's use the words of James, carried away by her own lust. Her lust led her to sin, and her sin brought forth death. Enduring means fighting our lusts and sinful desires. We must fight our lusts. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In his will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. Are you hearing the gospel? You know, we're not seeing the gospel written out the way Paul does so clearly in Galatians or so, does so clearly in Titus, but just throughout this book, James is, is, is showing the foundation that the gospel has for all that he says and, and, and even explicitly giving us glimpses of the gospel in his words. Now let's take a look at 19 and 20. This you know, my beloved children, but everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And just remember back, contrast this with James chapter three. The tongue is a fire, the very word of iniquity. We are to be careful with our speech, but it's hard, if not impossible in many instances. And James is going to teach us about the tongue when we get to James chapter three. And now let me read verses 21 through 25. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So prove yourselves doers of the word. Have you ever spoken the right words, but not really acted on them, not really acted out on your faith? 
And so maybe you're not even the one who should be answering this question. Would somebody close to you say that you have spoken the right words? You have spoken sound doctrine. You have spoken your faith, but your actions have not followed through. Let me give you one application. We have black brothers and sisters who suffer because their white church family does not put action behind the words we speak about the unity and diversity of the church or racial discrimination. They hear words, but they do not always see action, and this must not be. We must be the people of God and walk out our faith in a manner worthy of our calling. If we are to really endure, our identity in Christ and the words we speak and our actions must match. If our actions do not match our words and identity, it calls into question the genuineness of our faith. Um, I've been convicted of this very thing uh, since I've been here at Covenant Life Church. We live in a community that, huge city, huge uh, metropolitan area. There's many, many poor communities around us. And uh, in one year, as we were doing Sin Tampa, some of you will remember our Sin Tampa events where we basically do a mission trip to our city. Uh, we were introduced to a, a, a small elementary school, and I forgot the name, but just had tremendous, tremendous needs. I think uh, uh, Tori Popovich and Whitney Wechter were doing some work at that school. And as part of Sin Tampa, some of the the people of our church were able to go into that school, minister to the teachers, minister to the staff, show some love in a school that really needed that kind of input. And it was probably about a year after that where uh, either with Sin Tampa or with one of the uh, mission trips from, from Union University, we got to be introduced by Sam Tierney to another school, Graham Elementary School, a school with many, many uh, needs. And it was a, just an opportunity for, for me and for a lot of other people to put some action, to put some doing behind the faith that we're speaking. And so it started that relationship that Tanya and I get to continue to this day. To We're invited into a school. We are invited to minister to teachers and staff that don't get a lot of community support. We have opportunities to live out the gospel and to share the gospel. We have opportunities to do. And it was through the ministry of this church and, and the elders at that time and, and you members to introduce us to those types of opportunities. And, and I would just say, when we do Sin Tampa again, and be thinking of that as an opportunity to put actions behind your words. You know, we're not just feeding people. We're bringing the gospel, but they need food too. So as we're, as we're sharing the gospel and we're sharing gospel love, we're bringing food. We're bringing support and encouragement for teachers, for, for other people. And if, if there's one place that you would like to serve, that where you would like to reach the city and help other people in this church do that, please let me know as we plan our next mission trip to our city, we'd love to encourage other believers to join you in putting actions to your words. So let's, let's go on. Verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now think about this. 
if you think you're religious, if you think you're spiritual, but you don't bridle your tongue, that's not just a momentary lapse. Your tongue speaking is revealing something that's happening in your heart, something that your heart is feeding on, something that your heart is dwelling on. You cannot dismiss sins of the tongue as just minor outbursts of anger. You just can't do it. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. Okay, we're moving to chapter two. And in chapter two, James, uh, he makes something very clear that he began in chapter one. He has a structure to the way he writes. He usually lays out a command or principle or a question. Then he gives us an example to make it concrete in our minds. And then he exhorts, expounds, and explains what he's talking about. I promise you, if you read the book of James 50 times over the next month, this pattern is just gonna jump out at you and... and, uh, just hit you in the face. So we're going to use this structure and we need to understand this structure to understand uh, the remainder of the book. And so we look at chapter two, verse one. There's a command, verse one. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, that sounds, I think I can, I can wrap my head around that. Here's the example verses two through four. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? He's putting some, some meat on those bones and it, 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 it's starting to hit home to me. Then he gives us instruction and he sets that instruction apart. He says the word, listen. Now I'm gonna explain myself. You know, he introduced the rich and humble in chapter one. And he expands on it here. Why are we partial to rich people? Well, let's find the answer to this question in this letter. What do we do? We lust after something we don't have. We doubt God. We're unstable in our ways. We looked at scripture, but we've forgotten what it says about us. So we pay special attention to someone who has what we want. We pay special attention to someone because of our evil motives. And what does this passage say? Partiality is sin. It's sin just like adultery. Partiality is sin just like murder. It's not a minor sin. It's a sin deserving of merciless judgment. So church, replace partiality with mercy. Why? Mercy triumphs over judgment. James goes on. Verse 14, he has a question. Here's that structure again. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Here's the example. Verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And I think we know what use that is. But he gives us instruction beginning in verse 17. We have talked about the essential step in endurance in chapter one, this not just speaking, but doing. It's an essential step to endurance. 
But I do want to add one thing here in this passage. You know, some people see a contradiction in the Gospel of James and the Gospel of Paul. Look, let's look at verse 24 in chapter 2. It says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith. Paul says in Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, Justin preached on this passage in May, and he showed the agreement, the basic agreement, and the differences and emphases in these passages. And I just want to add one thing. In Galatians 2, the very chapter that Paul tells the Galatians they are justified by faith and not by works of the law, Paul tells the Galatians that he submitted this very gospel message to the pillars of the church, Peter, John, and James. The gospel preached by Paul in Galatians is the exact same gospel that James approved of. There is only one gospel and one good news whereby men may be saved. James and Paul, divinely inspired, are in agreement. We are saved by faith alone, and people saved by faith alone will exhibit works that show their faith. Chapter 3, there's a command And that command is in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. It says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur, incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. So too many Jewish Christians were attempting to teach what they did not clearly understand. This is a call for wise teachers, not foolish ones, and it's a caution to us. Are you seeking to teach others? Are you writing social media posts seeking to teach others? Be careful. You are incurring a stricter judgment. Beware of stumbling. Here's his example in 2B and verse 3. <clears throat> if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. And then his instruction beginning in verse 4, look, look at the ships also. Let's just skip down to verse 8. It says, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. <clears throat> My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Our tongue cannot be tamed. So what do we do? We're called to bridle the tongue in chapter 1. Here we're, we're told that the tongue cannot be tamed. And we just keep going and look in verses 11 and 12. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a wine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce flesh. We don't fight the battle right here. We don't fight it where the words are coming out. What do we do? We surrender our heart to God. He brought us forth by the word, chapter 1, verse 18. We receive the word implanted. We practice what we hear. 
we look intently at the perfect law of liberty and abide in it. And then what do you do? You let your tongue go because the fountain will send out fresh water. You're a new life, a new fig tree, and it will produce righteousness. We know the flesh has an influence and we're fighting that. And we know we can because of what Christ has given us, the word implanted. Let's go on. Verse 13, we have a question. Who among you is wise and understanding? And in this section, the example and the instructions are mixed together. What it tells us, if we lack wisdom, what are we going to do? We're gonna pray for it, expecting to receive it from the one who desires to give it based on his character, his desire and his promise. You know, we see a contrast between worldly demonic wisdom and wisdom from above. And what can we tell? We can tell wisdom. We can tell which wisdom is being used by the effects that it has, by the works that accompany wisdom. Let's keep going to chapter four. We have a question and a principle in verse one. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? We have the example in verse two and three. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Every quarrel I hear And every quarrel I am in always brings me back to this passage. And this passage highlights the central importance of humility in our lives. You lack wisdom, humbly ask for it. You're tempted to sin, humbly receive the word implanted. You show partiality, humble yourself. Do not speak proudly of your faith. Instead, humbly practice your faith and actions. Submit to God so that your tongue is a spring of fresh water. Godly wisdom is not arrogant. It's a humble wisdom that has no part of jealousy and selfishness. Quarrels, humble yourself. If you're in the wrong, humble yourself. If you're in the right, humble yourself. Can you imagine the two people arguing, two, two brothers or two sisters in Christ arguing, and hard words are being said, and feelings are being hurt, and anger is being felt, And one brother, one sister, looks at the other one and says, can we stop here for just a minute? You're saying things to me, and I can feel myself getting angry. I don't know if you're right or if you're wrong. It just feels unfair, and and I can feel anger welling up in me. And and as this anger is welling up, I'm having difficulty loving you. And that is a sin. I want to defend my position at all costs, and I'm not thinking of you, and I'm not considering you, and that's the sin. I need you, brother, to look at me and really help me see sin in my life, and I wanna be able to do that lovingly for you. Will you pray for me right now? That's just an example of the kind of humility that we need. We're sinners 
in sinful flesh who sin, but we also have the word implanted. We have the spirit of God in us. We need to stop. We need to not let our tongue spew out this salt water, this evilness. We as a church have got to stop that. We've got to humble ourselves. Perhaps consider you might not always be in the right. So if we're to avoid sin, avoid sinful talk, avoid sinful quarrels, we must humbly submit to God. Verse six, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So are you spiritually oppressed? Are you depressed over circumstances? Humble yourself. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Are you in an argument? Do you need wisdom? Are you in despair over discrimination? Humble yourself. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And then let your faith be shown in works. Let your tongue pour forth God's truth as you abide in him. We preached the first part of chapter five in the last three weeks, so I'm gonna be brief in this section. Verses one through six tell us about the judgment coming for the rich. And then in verse seven, James encourages us to be patient, to endure. We have the example of prophets to follow. So for us, instead of swearing or grumbling, we need to deal with life patiently. We need to patiently endure. So how? If you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy or cheerful, praise. If you're sick, ask your elders to pray for you. And if I had to sum up James' teaching on the tongue in one statement, I would say if you're in any doubt about what to say in any situation, prayer and praise are not a bad way to go. Come to the Lord humbly. Pray to him, expecting him to answer. Praise him for who he is. Submit to him. That is the way to endure. Church, if we're going to endure, we need to pray to our Lord. We need to praise him for who he is. And this is hard stuff. I know what I'm asking of you. I'm asking you to endure trials, to pray for wisdom, to bridle your tongue, to be doers of the word, to be completely impartial, to exhibit godly wisdom, to avoid quarrels, to humble yourself, to patiently wait, and then to endure still more. So can you do this? I mean, you know, we're, we're dealing with COVID and that seems pretty big, but there were a lot of other pandemics with a lot fewer resources in the past. And you can imagine greater things to come. There's this racial conflict in our country and, and attitudes are being revealed and we're seeing some hardships. Can you endure? And, and I hope as you're reading James, you're saying, I have the word implanted. I have the spirit of God. I have a new heart. I have a loving father. Yeah, I, I, I think I know with God's help I can do this. And then we have another question. Can I do this alone? And the answer to that question is you don't have to. 
God did not call you to this holy task alone. He's baptized you into his church. We're to confess to one another, pray for one another. We're to pray like our brother Elijah, and his prayers are no different than ours. And then, wow, even in all that, what happens if I stray? What happens if, if one of this church strays? We have brothers and sisters who will lovingly turn us back to the truth. Ed Welch, he wrote a book or two that we have in our bookstall. He's a, a counselor, a, a teacher. Um, he says, we don't tend to consider how our ordinary conversations are something we need to grow in. In our ordinary day-to-day conversations, we're helping each other endure. So we are encouraging each other, lifting up one another in prayer, pleading with each other to turn from sin, and we're doing this humbly. And church, I commend you, you are doing this well in many, many, many instances. We gather together in small groups and we confess sins and we encourage each other and, and, and we talk about failures and we encourage each other or we just live life together and we are able to see sin and weakness and we can call those out and encourage each other in those. And we must, if we're to endure, we must do that. That's why it's just so important for believers who are coming to this community to join with a church. It's so, so important when we have to leave this area for us to find a new church and other believers to join with. And with all that behind us, all this talk about endurance, all this talk about partiality and faith and works and and our tongue and quarrels and riches and just continuing to be patient, we get to verses 19 and 20 of chapter five, and James says, my brethren. So this James, the brother of Christ, the pillar of the church, the one who Paul reporting to, he's writing to us, and he's saying, my brethren. If any among you strays from the truth. Well, this any among you, he's used this phrase a few other times in this chapter. So if any among us are suffering, verse 13, pray. If any among us are sick, call the elders. If any among you are cheerful, praise. Now we get down here. If any among you stray from the truth. So what what I see James saying here, these are those who are among us who are straying away from the truth. They're, They're turning their back on Christ. They're proving themselves not to be believers by their actions. And this phrase carries the meaning that it is likely or almost certain to happen. So there's always been those who profess Christ but have ultimately turned from him. Judas is an example. And once someone strays from the truth, let me just keep reading. If any among you strays from the truth and then one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So when someone strays from the truth, they start down their own broad path, the error of their way. And it's a path filled with pride and arrogance and lusts and quarrels and ultimately death and judgment. Death's that word sinners usually describes, and I think in this case it does describe, someone who's outside the kingdom of God somebody who does not belong to Christ. And so sinners are burdened down by their own sins. They might not know it. They might not feel it. 
but they're carrying the weight of their own sin. And just one sin is enough to earn eternal judgment. They're carrying the multitudes of their own sins and their condition is hopeless. And some among us have proven themselves not to have been believers. And what do we do? We seek to lovingly call them to repentance. When we see them even now, we still lovingly call them to repentance. We practice church discipline. We practice church discipline as a loving call to those staying away, to repent, to return to faith, to endure. When we call a sinner from sin, from the air of his way, his soul is saved from a very real and a very sure death and the eternal judgment that accompanies that death. Those sins, they're covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. So what's this truth that we call sinners back to? And so right now, here towards the end of this sermon, I want us to remember together the gospel in James' words. Remember chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his only begotten son out of his love for us. God became man and dwelt among us. He came to save us. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He came that we may be perfect and complete. Chapter 1, verse 4. He came to restore us, and it took the blood of a son to cover our sins. If we endure in the faith, we will receive the crown of life. Jesus not only lived perfectly, he died for our sins, and then he rose again. He has demonstrated that he is able to conquer death and save us and give us a crown of life. Chapter 1, verse 12. He brought us forth by the word of truth. We heard the gospel and we responded in faith and repentance. Chapter one, verse 18. We live for Christ by looking intently at the perfect law of liberty and abiding by it. 125. God chose the poor and suffering. He chose us to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom. 25. We are no longer enemies of God. We're adopted children. Like Abraham, we're called to believe God, to rely, to trust in him, and that belief will be reckoned as righteousness, 2.23. We are to live abiding in Christ so that our words spring from the fountain of pure water, chapter 3, verse 11. And then in walking out our salvation, we have access to godly wisdom, chapter 3.17. And we bear the fruits of righteousness, 3.18. We, God's children, are called to live patiently until he returns. For God's return is near, chapter 5, 7, and 8. And then Christ will cover our sins when we turn from the error of our ways. So this is a point where we've read the letter of James. We've preached through. We've heard the letter of James. And I don't think James just wrote this for somebody to put a magnet on it and hang it on their refrigerator. This is supposed to change our lives. If you're not a believer, you have heard the gospel. You've heard James preach the gospel, the gospel of his own brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no salvation apart from Christ. So if you have not believed, if you've not repented of your sin, if you've not turned to Christ for salvation, you need to do that. The consequences of not doing that are eternal death and judgment. 
if you have not done that yet, I beg you, talk to a believer. Call me. Call any of our elders or staff. We would love to talk to you about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ because he saved us when we were not seeking him. If you are a Christian, James calls us to endure. And that endurance isn't just, you know, sometimes I think of endurance, I just, if I just hang on long enough, I'll just barely get by. That's not what James is talking about. James is talking about a people of God who are righteously living to the glory of our Father. And so we're not just barely getting by. We're living in the strength and power of his name. We are walking humbly with him at all times. In the midst of trials, we're enduring, and we're enduring gladly, and we're enduring together. In the midst of quarrels, we're stopping, and we're repenting, and we're humbling ourselves, and we're doing that for the glory of our Father. James calls us to live for Christ. And so I'd like you to bow your heads. I want to pray. Think about your response. And then one more thing I'm just going to ask of you. Take some time and read through James in one sitting, even today if you can. And I'm really only asking you for about 15 minutes of your time. It does not take much time to lead through the book of James. And just pray as you're reading. Pray asking for wisdom. Pray asking the Lord to change you. Pray asking this word to be implanted in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are, you are our Father. And it is just good to stop, even just for a minute, and just remember that you are the Lord. You've created us. You've adopted us. You've forgiven our sins. You have placed us in Christ. Every good thing we have is from you. You've withheld nothing from us that we need. And, and we look around and we see a broken world and we see our own brokenness and we are thankful that you saved us, not, not based on our works, our useless works before salvation, but you saved us based on the sacrifice, on the blood of Christ, and then you've called us to good works. And it is a joy and it is a privilege to endure. So, in trials and suffering, we pray, we suffer, but our hope isn't in this world. Our hope is in Christ alone. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.